Welcome to another episode of Breakthrough Science with Prime Movers Lab. Join venture capital firm Prime Movers Lab as we dive deep into the most exciting advances in breakthrough science and technology with the founders, researchers, and prime movers who are working to transform billions of lives. Hey, hey everyone. Thanks for coming. My name is Brad Pruenti. I'm a partner here at Prime Movers Lab. Been here about two years. Prior to this, I worked at a startup in the semiconductor manufacturing industry. Uh, since I've joined, I've worked on our ag and food tech teams. And for the last four or five months, I've been working on a deep dive into robotics with Marissa. I'll have her introduce herself in a moment. Uh, first order of business, I want to welcome all of you, our audience, our limited partners, founders, the extended Prime Movers Lab family. Uh, if you aren't familiar with us, we're an early stage venture capital firm investing in breakthrough scientific technologies that we think have the potential to impact billions of lives. We do that across six broad areas, energy, transportation, infrastructure, manufacturing, human augmentation, and agriculture. That's obviously a really wide purview. And so uh, we like to do these deep dives and, and really get, uh, get to know industries that we think are particularly in interesting uh, and these webinars are our way of sharing what we've learned and, and sharing the people we've met. And so with that, I want to mention a couple of housekeeping things and then uh, we'll get going. We're going to keep this to just about an hour. Uh, we'll try to be on time. And if you have questions, we'd love to, to work them in. So you can use the chat or the Q&A feature and Marissa and I will weave them in as best we can. Marissa, do you want to introduce yourself quickly? Sure. Thanks, Brad. Um, I'm Marissa. I am here as a research fellow at Prime Movers, and I started helping out with the steep dive in robotics probably early last fall. Um, in my day job, I'm a PhD student at UC Berkeley. I'm duly appointed at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab um, and in the Berkeley AI Research Group with Trevor Darrell. Um, and we'll kick off with introductions from the panelists. Um, David, would you like to start? Sure. Hi everyone, thanks for having me. Um, my name is David. Um, I'm the co-founder and CEO of Remedy Robotics. My background is um, as a cardiac surgeon from Australia um, and really started Remedy Robotics because I was kind of frustrated with the lack of clinical impact surgical robots were having. Um, and we kind of exist to democratize access to care. So, so bringing surgical care to people who can't get it. And um, yeah, thrilled to be here. Great. Rod, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Rodney Brooks. Um, I've been uh, building robots forever. Um, I was a professor at MIT uh, running the AI lab and then the computer science and artificial intelligence lab for uh, many years. And um, my uh, robotics companies have included iRobot, which has delivered 35 million Roombas. I think that's the most robots from any company, any time. Um, more recently, Rethink Robotics, which uh, uh, delivered uh, about 10,000 uh, robots with somewhat humanoid form into uh, factories around the world and cageless. And right now I'm co-founder and CTO of Robust AI, where we're building uh, robots, uh, smart, autonomous mobile robots that are human-centered for work in fulfillment centers and in factories. Thank you, Rod. And Joyce? Hi, my name's Joyce, and I'm the, uh, one of the co-founders here at Mass Robotics and Chief of Operations. Uh, we're an independent nonprofit 
uh, organization that was established to help grow the robotics or help grow robotics technology companies. Um, and we do that in several ways, but mostly we advocate for the adoption of robotics pretty much worldwide. And we do that through our industry-led working groups. We accelerate companies through our space here in Boston. We have a robotics hub where we have uh, workspace, lots of robotics platforms um, that companies can use, including about eight Sawyers, Rod, and uh, um, the other one, Baxter. We have a big Baxter that we use in STEM. And then the third thing we do is we educate. So we educate our startups and we educate the community. And then we have a lot of STEM programs. For me, I'm a doubly um, and, and studied sonar for yeah, many years and then went to the Air Force and did radars and business development for many years and then really just came into robotics about a dozen years ago. Well, thank you all. And I think to kick off, I'd love to start with the question, why now? Robotics, automation have been around for decades. Why is this an interesting time for us as, an inv as investors and, and for you as builders to, to build robots? You want to designate one of us? <laughs> no, I want, I want you to take the initiative. Okay. Well, why now? Um, why now is because um, um, silicon is getting cheaper and cheaper right out of the periphery. Uh, we can run um, enormous uh, neural models right next to cameras. It doesn't perceive the world, but it gives us labels about the world. And so our robots can just know a whole lot more than they could in the past. Um, that said, we're, you know, it has been the time for robotics for quite a while. It's just the rest of the world took a little while to catch up, but we're there now. Right. And I think a lot of that also, Rod, is uh, the compute power, not just on the silicon, but in the cloud. So now robots don't have to cost as much money because you don't have to have all the computation done on the robot itself. It can be done in the cloud. Um, sensors are becoming cheaper, right? Um, and I think that, I think there's a lot through COVID that showed us that it, we're ripe for adoption right now. There were a lot of people that couldn't go to work. There were a lot of, um, a lot of habits changed and it showed a real need for automation a little bit more, which includes robotics really. For us, it's, um, it's kind of a clinical need. So recently a lot of evidence has come out that um, a lot of the surgical procedures that we do are super, super time critical. Um, but the, the surgeons who do them are highly concentrated in, um, in, in very specialist centers in the big cities. It means that like people in rural US and, and all around the world don't get access. So for us, it's really about um, establishing access and the evidence for that is relatively new. So um, that's, that's why, why now for us. I think, David, you, you hit on kind of the, the labor issue, which I think is one of the main reasons you hear talking to, to any robotics company. Um, curious what, uh, if anything, you have to add, Rodney, Joyce, David, on, on how labor plays in. And, and do you see robots as replacing or as augmenting uh, human labor? Well, I see it as augmenting at the moment. Um, you know, in, in fulfillment, there are 500,000 jobs unfilled in the U.S. in fulfillment centers. There are 700,000 jobs unfilled in manufacturing. Um, people so, sort of think that there are no jobs, but there's lots of jobs uh, waiting to be filled. There was an ad at the last 49ers game here in San Francisco. There was an ad from GM asking people to come and work on their factory floor. That was where they decided to advertise. Uh, so there is a shortage of, of, of people. The robots of today are not going to replace the people. They're going to augment the people. 
And that's important to understand. And why do I say they're only going to augment? Because people are just amazing machines. They can do amazing things. We don't have robots as good as people. So the best they can do is augment. For us, there, um, there aren't enough people. So in a um, in a country like like India, well, which which is a country we work with a lot, there's an enormous amount of cardiovascular disease. There's two thousand strokes a day or more, and only two of the people can get procedures. So um, um, there simply aren't enough people. And if we can augment people there who aren't specialists to be able to do these procedures, we can bring access to them. But um, thankfully, we don't need to put anyone out of work. We need we need to enable more people to do the work. Right, and so I think a lot of the, um, the technology that like I see our companies working on here at Mass Robotics and Startups is how to make the robots easier to use and easy to use for the average person that doesn't know a thing about electronics. So a lot of them are working on interfaces with how do you teach a, a cobot, a robot arm that's collaborative to be able to go into a factory and you can push it up to one table one day and then the next day you can move it to a different table to do another repetitive task. So it's a person picking which task the robot's gonna be doing and then being able to easily train through either verbal commands or physically moving the robot arm and showing them um, or just typing in simple commands. And so a lot of what I see our, our companies working on are that interface to make it a lot easier so that people do find it easy to be working with these collaborative robots. Um, just go, going off what, what Joyce said, we, we kind of faced a decision as a company about whether or not we try to automate an entire surgical procedure, which um, technically uh, we could do, but there's a whole lot of regulatory and, and workflow barriers to it. Or do we just build a system that really lowers the bar um, to make non-specialists able to use it? So really making it a lot easier for people to do these things rather than kind of completely automating it and replacing it. And I think that, that aligns with most people's incentives. Yeah. Do you feel like there is a, uh, a a challenge to getting people comfortable? So Joyce, whether it's you know the the person on the manufacturing floor who has to work next to a robot, or David, the patients who have to you know have a robot do surgery on them. How do you address that? How do you approach that problem? I think part of it is is not um, inundating them with twenty robots at a time. I think if you bring in one robot. Um, and you get them used to it. And I think the, the way that you know that they've adopted and are, and are comfortable and happy about it is when they name the robot. So we found like a lot of these, we work with a lot of medium-sized factories and, um, and when they bring in one robot and they give it a name and then they put a hat on it or they dress it up for holidays, you know, then you know that they consider it a coworker and they've, um, they've come to the realization that is actually helping them. So. I think part of it is introducing them slowly, not just coming in and, you know, one at a time, kind of, I don't know. What For do us, think, it's kind of different. Uh, like, I, I think um, what Rodney said before, humans are really good. So um, the, the only way really, I mean, for us to get adoption is clinical evidence. So, so show that by using these robots, um, the patients are going to have a superior outcome. Um, otherwise, you may as well have a human doing it. There's no point in using a robot for the sake of a robot. Unless there's no workers. Unless, well, uh, then, there, then there's a point, I would argue, but, but yes. So, so David, I want to tell you about it. Last, last week, I was taking a, an Uber from Newark Airport into Manhattan, and I snapped this picture out of the window. It's a, it's a billboard, and it says, same-day robotic surgery, live pain-free. 
and this was an orthopedic uh, uh, surgery place. I was just astounded that there was that level of user acceptance or people acceptance that that would be on a billboard, you know, on a major road into Manhattan. So I think at some level things are changing, but it's really important to make the robots accessible to the people around them and not their enemies. In hospitals, we see robots up and switched off and pushed to the side. And you ask what happened, they said, oh, it, it wasn't working. But what that probably means was they were rushing a gurney, the nurses were rushing a gurney down, down a corridor with a patient on it. And there was some um, you know, robot that was supposed to be taking dirty sheets down to the down, down, down to the basement. And it was in the middle of the corridor. It saw something moving. It just stopped dead in its tracks and blocked the blocked the way. So we have to make the robots that they're not getting in the way of other people around doing their job, but that they have control and they can still continue as they're able to do with their co-workers. They're able to say, excuse me, can we, we got to get by. So you need the robots to be attentive to the human needs of people around them to make it work. I totally agree. One of the most, agree with go, go ahead, David. No, no, but one of the, I mean, doctors kind of care about two things, helping patients and making money. And, and um, a lot of the lack of acceptance of robots has been because they have slowed down patient care um, and the course of care, which has meant people aren't able to, to do the procedures they want. And so because of that inability to work in with workflows and what everything else is going on along around them, that's kind of um, hampered, um, hampered acceptance and hampered taking, taking these things up. So it's like they're kind of built in a factory in isolation, ignoring um, the whole hospital and what goes on in the hospital. And, and that's been to their detriment. I think- yeah, David, David, of, Go ahead, Joyce. I was gonna say, there's a lot of universities now that have, um, that have the next step and they do have like a practice point at WPI or they have like MGH has a test facility where you test things before it goes into the hospital. So I think there's a lot of, a lot more of that happening now. So ra rather than just putting the, the robot out and we call it the wild when it's going out into the public um, because you never know what's gonna happen there. Um, there's this, this interim step that is, you know, semi-wild. When, when Marissa and I went to, to CES, we had a lot of experiences where it felt like we were moments away from being run over by robots. And that was uh, not particularly inspiring. And, and I think uh, kind of indicative of the attitude you need to bring where, you know, if you're going to work in an environment with people, you need to expect that, you know, you, you need to consider how those people are gonna feel working around you. Um, I wanna pull back a second. What were some of the industries that adopted robotics automation first? What are the, what are going to be the last, and like, what are the lessons that, that uh, you and, and the industry have drawn from that? Well, you know, the, the first um, um, robot arms, uh, Made made by Joe Engelberger, uh, went into car factories for point welding and then spray painting, uh, and those robots were the antithesis of what we were just talking about about interacting with humans. They were in places where no humans were allowed. So in this paint shop or in the welding shop, it's all robots, no people. So that was how things worked for a long time because there just wasn't enough sensing capability to have people nearby. Um, so now, um, you know, there are more and more robots in fulfillment centers, um, but actually only 20% of warehouses for fulfillment in the U.S. have any automation whatsoever. And any automation includes conveyor belt. Um, 
so because a lot of the warehouses are very crowded with lots of people and lots of mess. So it's taking a while. And now, you know, with more perception capabilities and more computing, as, as Joyce said, we're, we're able to do that. Although the Amazon um, robotic systems, based on Kiva, which was a Massachusetts company, partition the world into places where robots can be and places where people can be. So it's still um, safety by separation. Uh, we're starting to see um, safety by sensing rather than by separation. And that's also a change that's happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so like you said, the uh, manufacturing and fulfillment centers, I think were the first to adopt. And part of that again is the shortage of people to work in those warehouses. You know, in COVID showed this, people were ordering online, ordering groceries online, anything online, right? People are not going to go back to just going to the going to the stores when they can order online so easily. So that, um, you know, I know there's still a long way to go with adoption for robotics, even in the warehouses and picking, but it is definitely, um, you know, all of the studies are showing that it's like a hockey stick. They're all going to start adopting soon. They have to because they can't find the workers, right? So, so that's like one of the places that I think really is already adopting. You see DHL and FedEx and all of them have robotics innovation groups that are working on this. Um, I think one of the next places to adopt like more rapidly is healthcare. Um, and it's also assistive technologies. So assistive technologies for the impaired um, exoskeletons are, are, I won't say common now, but they're really like on the upward trend um, and, and hospitals and, and healthcare and senior senior care, I think is going to be another, that's going to be a big adoption soon. I, I'd like to talk about elder care because I think it's uh, um, it's a place where, the, where there is a tremendous pull and the pull will continue. Um, you know, last year we saw for the first time the population of China went down, which means uh, because of the one child policy, it's just going to be a really elderly society. We already know that in Japan, Italy, uh, starting to be in the U.S. The U.S. is less of an elderly society because there is still immigration. But without immigration, we would be a very uh, much more elderly society and will become a more elderly society. So what does that mean? It means there's a lot less people around to help with the care of elderly people. And the, the, the thing that elderly people need is um, uh, independence, and um, dignity. Um, so having robotic solutions to help them can give more of that than having to have people come in and, and help them, you know, wash themselves, et cetera. Now we have a lot of passive devices that are used for the elderly, but very few robotic devices. I think there will be tremendous pull. I wish I knew what those robots should look like because I'd be working on them like crazy if I had any good ideas. Someone is going to have some good ideas and then there's going to be big adoption. I, I don't want to take the, the conversation in the wrong direction, but one of the things that always struck me um, in when I was working in hospitals is how many people come into hospital who have no next of kin, no friends, and who are home alone by themselves um, and they're lonely. I, I, I wonder, what, what is it too dystopian to think of a world where we use robots to kind of help out there? Or, or, or is, is that somewhere you, you see it going, guys? I, I, yeah. Certainly that's been the idea in Japan for a while, but I, I find it a little... A little, little creepy? 
Ugh, creepy. Well, yeah. I, yeah. I don't because I think about, um, you know, there's been lots of studies and Rod, we actually saw a talk early on at one of those conferences um, that was a woman who was doing a study with robots versus people talking to the elderly, making sure they were taking their medication. And the, the elderly will be very nice to the robot, even if the robot is, you know, not like, um, not completely humanoid, but really looks a little childish almost, but they can talk to the robot and they're nice and they give the robot a name and they say, oh, thank you. They actually say thank you to the robot for reminding them to take their medication. Now, I know if I had to call my mom who was elderly to remind her every day to take her medication, she would be nasty. So it's, um, and, and also what about these patients with Alzheimer's and dementia, right? They actually, the companionship really kind of helps them keep going. So I don't think, I don't think that's, um, that's freaky. It would be freaky if they tried to make them look like us and tried to make them look human. Um, that can be a little uncanny and a little, because you're never going to get it exact. And so there's always going to be something off. That, so I think making them look cute, we actually have an Australian company here now at Mass Robotics. Um, she's from Melbourne and uh, she's making a companion robot just exactly for this. So I want to pull on that thread a little bit more about form factors. Because I think listening to everything that you're saying, we were talking about, you know, socio, like economic um, and emotional skills, right? Um, we're talking about needing to interact well with humans in terms of not interrupting their workflow, being able to interact in human spaces. It seems like the obvious answer here is a humanoid, right? Something that could replace a human. And you see a lot of people getting very excited about that. But Joyce already kind of hinted that, that that's not where she wants to go. And I know Rod has some strong opinions about this too. Um, so, so why are humanoids maybe not the answer or maybe you think they should be? Well, I'll, I'll just answer that, you know, I've built more humanoid robots than anyone else has. I started building them in 1992 uh, in the lab. And then, um, you know, Joyce says she has Baxter, which is de very definitely a two-armed humanoid uh, robot um, that we, we were building at Rethink Robotics. Um, the argument I made 30 years ago was exactly what um, Elon Musk said a year or two ago. The world is made for things with human form, so we'll build robots with human form. But it's easier said than done. Um, and sometimes, as Joyce points out, it, it, it freaks people out if things are too humanoid, which is why Baxter doesn't really look like a person, even though it's got a humanoid form. We really dialed back on the reality, you know, making it look like a realistic human. Um, there will be some cases where it's applicable, um, definitely in most homes being able to get up and down a few steps makes things much more accessible. Roombas can't go up and down steps, so they're sort of stuck on the floor they're on. Being able to move up and down a little bit would be good. But the current walking algorithms that you see out there from all the famous robotics companies, um, when there is an imbalance that happens, they put out a tremendous amount of torque into their motors. And you don't want to be next to one of those robots that's falling over. And, and if you're elderly, you really don't want to be next to one of them because you've got to get out of there really quickly when they're unstable. So uh, there are a lot of challenges yet, um, a lot of different sorts of things that need to be done to make things of humanoid form and be um, acceptable, I, I think, in an environment, which is why I've gone to uh, exactly the opposite. Um, you know, our, our current our robot here, Robust AI, looks like a shopping cart because 
then people know that if they grab the handlebars, they can move it around. Uh, we don't have to tell them that. They just see that. Well, there's handlebars there. I can grab them. And yeah, when they grab them, they can get control of the robot. So we're going after um, things that people understand, but which are not weird or threatening. So that our robots are just smart shopping carts. But for us, it, it just kind of actually doesn't make sense. I mean, we... Um... We, we need more than two hands to, to do this procedure um, uh, as well as we would like it to do. Um, and, um, and so, I mean, humans have some, I mean, not a huge number of kind of dexterity or handling limitations, but one of them uh, is having only two of these. So um, I guess we could make a, a six-handed um, humanoid, but then it really starts to get freaky and also unnecessarily expensive. <laughs> Right, right. So that's the other point is the expense, right? Humanoids are very expensive. The number of sensors you have to have on them. Um, and then, you know, even if you look at, at you know, some of the, the humanoids now, like the digit, they don't have hands yet. So once they have the hands, um, you know, then you're going to have to have more sensors on the fingertips. You know, people take for granted that a human can look at an egg and pick up an egg and not break it. And they can pick up a bowling ball and not think about it right? There's no gripper that can really do both of those things. So, you know, they, I don't know, I just, I think it would be very expensive. I feel like something on wheels or treads or is much more economical and serves a better function. So how far away do you think we are? Like, do you think that we should be iterating towards the eventuality of human humanoids or should we just forget that form factor altogether and go into something else? Who, who wants it? Do, do, does someone want it? Mm -mm. I think the counter argument is that <clears throat> if you build it, if, if if you could build it, you know the the market is enormous. I mean, you're you're talking about all human labor, right? Like if you could if you could truly like a hundred percent replace uh, human workers, and so you'd el el eliminate labor as a constraint. Um, you'd open up all kinds of of opportunities. That said, you know, I, I yeah. take your points on, on current uh, limitations. By, by that argument, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, we should have been building horse robots uh, because they would be able to uh, uh, do, do transportation. But by the way, actually, this, this, is, a, this is an interesting point. Uh, when I grew up in Adelaide, South Australia, we did have autonomous uh, milk trucks. Um, uh, they were driven by horses and the horse would just walk down the center of our street and the milkman would run back and forth and get the milk and deliver it to the houses and the horses did great so adelaide is very cutting edge <laughs> very old um so going back to the question of cost um what is it that makes robotics cost so much right now um and what what advances are you seeing that are is going to enable us to bring that cost down? Roombas are pretty cheap, and that was part of the um, the decision we made early on that to get mass adoption, we had to have a, a low cost product. Um, and so we we were going for volume from day one, and what could be useful uh, from day one, and what could be affordable. Um, so part of the problem is that at the moment, people tend to think of, we got to spend whatever it takes to make a robot to be able to do something. And in the case of um, surgery, 
probably people would like an expensive robot that they feel some somewhat better about that. But I think for other aspects of robotics, it takes a a, a, a brutal brutal cost down or cost low from the start to be able to do it. And then it can be low cost, but it's it's hard work. And that's not what researchers are used to thinking about. It's a very different skill set. Uh, our robot's low cost and um, it, it has to be low cost. Um, uh, hospitals and healthcare networks are fed up with spending a couple of million dollars on a machine with no ROI. Um, and and they, they're not going to do it anymore. There's also, a, I mean, I won't go into too much detail, but the amount of different things that our robot needs to do um, is actually relatively limited. The complexity of the hardware is, is, is not huge. A lot of the innovation has come from the software. So you really should be able to make something um, that, that can do what we plan to do relatively cheaply. Um, and that's the only way nowadays hospitals will buy it because... If there's no um, if there's no financial benefit for them, um, they'll look the other way. I I, I want to understand like what you guys think are inexpensive because the last I checked, the Roomba was like twelve hundred dollars for for the newest one with the wall mount that un unloads and and robot arms, even the ones that are collaborative that fifty thousand you know fifty thousand of them have been sold, they're still thirty to eighty k. Yes, it's just the robot arm. So that's really still not inexpensive yeah. for, for a smaller, medium-sized company that needs to do, you know, some adoption. Then they need custom grippers because they're all doing something a little bit different. So they need a gripper and then they need an integrator. So it's still not inexpensive. I don't good, think. Good point. Well, I mean, sub $100,000, which is probably a different, a different realm to, to, to you guys. <laughs> yeah. So Joyce, I can't answer for the $1,200 Roomba. When I was there, the uh, lowest cost retail price we sold them for was one hundred and twenty dollars. Um, oh, I would take one for that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, um, you know, there's a, there's upselling. You know, there's how you market yourself, how you place yourself, what brand. You, you know, there's, there's all sorts of things that go into that. Um, uh, so, but the fact that we we first came out, our very first robot was two hundred dollars, and that we weren't the first robotic vacuum on the market there was the electrolux trilobite which was two thousand euros and that was when euros were worth something that was uh, quite a few yeah. thousand dollars and that price difference just destroyed their market and got us into mass scale by coming out at two hundred dollars yeah so I, that's I, like that's the consumer side right so the yeah. consumer side you can still keep a little little more inexpensive like the the one that i have for my garden right it does the, the weed whacking through the in between the plants, which is awesome. It worked all summer. It was great, um, and that was I think two forty nine. So, you know, it's not bad for not having to go out every day and weed my garden. <laughs> our our robots will be expensive. The other thing is that, like, I mean, much less expensive than millions of dollars. But we have the added um, issue that we need um, reusable components and sterilizable components. That are that are manufactured under regulation, so they are going to cost a few thousand dollars a pop, but that allows us to have a kind of different business model that 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 is that is different to selling a multi-million dollar piece of capital equipment up front. Um, so yeah, I guess it, it's different in every industry. So as we're thinking more about the increased presence of robots in our lives, 
Um, how do you personally and how would you encourage the average person to think about their relationship with robots? Are these just simply tools that help us do our jobs better? Are we getting into, you know, Joyce mentioned dressing them up and thinking of them as a coworker? Are we in danger of having some robotic overlords? Where, how in your mind do you put the role of robots in relation to humans? I, I want to mm -hmm. jump in with something that Joyce said before about people naming and, and dressing up their robots. That to me has been the most surprising thing um, that has happened. <laughs> We had uh, about 7,500 robots in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, doing a, a roadside bomb disposal. Uh, so 19-year-old American servicemen, you know, they graduated high school, done their basic training, shipped off to Iraq, Afghanistan. Um, and they had to deal with, with improvised explosive devices, and they used our robots. And what surprised us was they started naming their robots um, they wrote their names on the on the back of the robot, and we had uh, service depots, and people would come in with their robot, uh, which was blown to smithereens, and ask us to fix it. And we'd say, "Well, we can give you a new robot." No, 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 no. This is Scooby. Scooby and I have been through a lot together. That was a real surprise to us. Uh, that uh, personification of the robots. Um, it certainly happened with Roombas also. There was my clothes for them, people named them, etc. Um, so there is um, a bonding with machines. But, but, you know, when you look back, you know, people fall in love with their cars uh, too. Um, so, you know, us humans do that with, with machines uh, in ways that I just find slightly irrational and slightly weird, uh, to be honest. But that's the way it is. Um, so one, I think, you know, to get adoption of robots, one doesn't want to break that model. Um, whether you try to encourage it or not is a different thing, but certainly not break it. Um, and that leads me to a to a, another point, which is, is slightly more difficult. Joyce talked about the cloud, doing computation in the cloud. When you've got fleets of robots that are connected to the cloud, what the robot over there knows, the robot over here immediately knows, and the individualism of the, the what's an individual is now smeared in a very different sort of way. Um, you know, I didn't tell you that, I told that robot that, but you know it, um, which doesn't isn't what happens with people. And to have a good user experience in that environment is a real challenge and to think about how that should work. Um, so, there's, there's lots of things to figure out yet. Yeah, so when I'm explaining it to, to people who are you know, skeptical about robotics, I try to give them examples like, you know, um, you used to be in New York City and you'd see 12 guys with shovels, right? Mm -hmm. Do you wanna take those, you know, do those guys wanna go back to digging holes? No, we have bulldozers for that, right? So those people were, they lost their jobs, but now they had to learn how to drive. So I feel like, you know, Every time we've advanced in technology, there's been a little bit of job loss, but you just need some re, um, you know, re-education, right? But it's happening so fast now that how do you, you know, they even say that when you start college these days, in the next four years, a lot of what you learned is obsolete by the time, you know, you're in the workforce for a couple of years. So you really have to stay relevant. So that's one thing is the technology is changing very fast. But I feel like to give examples, and one about the cloud, which is really interesting, and I, I like this example. I 
tried to explain to somebody, what does it mean to, um, you know, when you teach somebody something, it's taught to all the robots. Well, I have four daughters that I had to teach to drive. And, you know, with the first one, it was, you know, I'm holding on to the steering wheel, I'm holding on to the thing, I'm yelling, you're too close to the side. If everything I told that daughter was like ingested in the second daughter, it would have been a little bit smoother. And then by the time I got to number four, I probably could have just gotten in the car, put the seatbelt on and let her drive because she'd already have all the experience and the knowledge she needs. So that's kind of like explaining how you can spread the cloud knowledge out to the different robots, right? So I think if you, when you put things in examples for, for people who aren't um, you know, familiar with robots, I think it puts things into perspective and they can look at things different ways. Well, one of the weird things about medicine and surgery is how much patients jumped at the opportunity for, for robots to do the operation. Uh, um, uh, in, to the extent that it was really used as a marketing ploy but by some of the big big companies uh, um, so that to sell to surgeons, so that surgeons could say to patients, listen, it's not just me doing your operation, it's me and a robot. And patients loved it in, in the absence of any clinical evidence, in fact, and, and to, to some detriment. Um, so, and, and it kind of took the industry in a funny direction, but um, I don't know, it's weird when the, when their life or their, um, or their sexual, their sexual function, which was um, the common example, uh, was in the hands of, of something, humans went for the robot. <laughs> um, so it's, it's, it's very interesting. That is super interesting. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I think another um, relationship I've also heard um, is going back to Rod's example of the horse as the first autonomous cart is the idea of robots as service animals, not quite tools, not quite coworkers, but something we work with that we maybe not can't completely understand, but has its own function and has, we have our own specialty. Um, going on to think about adoption, we were talking about it a little bit earlier, and I think there was a lot of discussion about being able to work seamlessly with a robot. How much of the hesitation to adoption do you think is design choices like that and where the robot just doesn't fit in nicely versus actual technological blockers where it just can't do the job that somebody wants it to do? I think Rodney, you should talk about the design of the, um, the Sawyer and the, the Baxter because people seem to love that because it had the screen with the eyes and so I think people liked and adopted that more readily. Yeah, the 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 screen with the eyes were so it glanced at where it was about to move. And so we didn't need to train people about that. We'd ask people after they'd been around a, a, a Sawyer or a Baxter for a couple of days, what are its eyes doing? And they said, it, it's looking where it's about to move, which is what we humans do all the time. We give a clue about what we're going to do because our eyes look where our hand is going to go. So we just simulated that. And it, it, it really made it easier for people to understand the intent of the robot second by second. I think when we get into real trouble is when the robotic system is a different world. And um, actually, Marissa, you told me about your experience at CES with asking people if you could move their robot a few feet, I think. Maybe you should tell that story because I think yeah. it's very informative. Yeah, well, this was you know, inspired by my, my visit to Robust of they 
have this handlebar that you can move. And so I wanted to see how novel that was. So at every booth we were at at CES, I asked people, what happens if a robot's coming at me? Um, and one of the answers was, well, it will ask you to move out of the way. And I was like, well, what if I don't want to, right? And they just said, well, no, it will just freeze. And I'm like, well, okay, what if I try to move it? And they said, oh, nope, it needs to then be reset from its beginning um, to do this again. And it was amazing how how common that kind of mentality was that, that we will adapt um, and get out of the way of the robots. And that's enough. Yeah, and I think for real acceptance, it's got to be the other way around, that the robot yeah. adapting to the people. Um, and respecting them because part of it's respect this this thing doesn't show me any respect you know why why do i have to be collaborative with it if it's you know if its way is the right way and my way is getting in the way um and i think that's all too common that i love engineers but engineers can design really stupid things um uh, because they you know if you just specify the problem, I'll design the optimal solution. But the, the problem is not this. It's the problem is how it, everything interacts in society with these robots. And and that way of thinking is important. I so said the, the willingness to, to interact and to use them when productivity is slowed down, um, even marginally in a place like a hospital, is close to zero. Right. Immediately it gets thrown in the room and, and, and gets dusty. Yep. Right, and there's no universal cues, um, I guess, because there's so many different types of robots, but we had a, a big discussion today about autonomous vehicles and when an autonomous vehicle is on the side of the road, how does uh, a police officer, law enforcement, or EMT come up to the, to, the, to the vehicle? How do they know who's in the vehicle? How do they know if it's safe? How do they know? So they're looking at, like, is there a universal way for, oh, for oh, autonomous oh. vehicles to show they're slowing down, speeding up? Like, there's... Oh, Joyce, you don't, you don't know about the, the advances in San Francisco. Um, you know, I have taken a, a, a true driverless uh, rides in cruise vehicles here. Um, but uh, there was just a story two weeks ago that the uh, San Francisco uh, Fire Department has a method for dealing um, with robots, with, with autonomous vehicles, with no human driver that are you know, coming through where there's a fire and they're pretty worried about that. Uh, so they use a sledgehammer and break the windscreen and that usually stops them. But I'm sure that the vehicle maker is not happy with that, right? No, but that's part of the problem that they've deployed a system which is right. probably there's, there's just been, um, Another YouTube uh, video I saw where uh, the car gets pulled over for speeding it pulls over but as soon as the the police officer approaches the vehicle it takes off because it sees that it's safe and there's nothing in front of it so it doesn't realize that it's like stopped so there's still a lot of work that needs to be done in yeah, well, back and forth I, I i report in my blog you know one of the rides i had it decided to come to the other side of the road where there was construction and it was I had to go out into the traffic flow to get to it because, you know, I stood and waved, come here, that would work for a human driver, did not, of course, work. So it was just there. This is where I am. You come to me. Yeah. A lot of work. I want to I, I weave in one of the, the audience questions, which is, which is taking a step back, I think, to something we were talking about earlier, which is uh, kind of the, the intersection of cost and mobility. Um, 
at what point does it make sense to have a bipedal robot versus just putting, you know, making it cheaper and putting one on each floor? Unless you have to transport things between floors, you have to get upstairs. We don't have robots that can walk like humans walk. And the way humans walk is by applying minimal forces. Our walking algorithms apply maximal forces. Until we get better walking algorithms, and that involves better materials that do, do a lot of the energy absorption in the material, it's, it's walking robots are not going to be safe to be around. Um, we see them walk, people think, ah, well, walking is solved, but walking is not solved. Just like manipulation is not solved. And Joyce, you were saying earlier, you got to buy all these different grippers. There's a, a German company, which I think has 6,000 different grippers in its catalog. Um, um, the, the grippers we sold for Baxter and Sawyer were no different than the ones I used 40 years before that at, at the Stanford mm -hmm. AI lab. We have not made great progress in, in dexterous hands. And I'm guessing... Um, uh, David, that your robots have very specific sorts of grippers attuned surgery um, and probably multiple end effectors for different parts of the, the surgery, I'm guessing. Yes, very. And also, I mean, a hospital environment is designed that a lot of critical things need to happen without people taking stairs. So beds get moved around all the time. So I would suggest to that robot that they take the elevator. It's probably easier. I don't know. I want to move to, uh, to to business models for a moment. One of the, the most interesting things I think that we've learned is one of the most impactful breakthroughs has, has just been robotics as a service, as, mm -hmm. as a business model. Um, and the ability, you know, Joyce, you gave the example of a thirty dollars or $80,000 robotic arm. The ability to pay, you know, a few thousand dollars a month and, and kind of see the ROI for that right away uh, versus you know, getting approvals to go spend hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars is, is quite a bit easier. And so it, it makes adoption a lot easier. The flip side of that is, uh, you know, I heard a good example of this yesterday or, or Monday. Um, if it's an environment where you can't take the risk that someone else controls whatever it is you're doing. So, you know, if, if you need labor, this was in, in an agricultural setting, you can't take the risk that you can't harvest your field tomorrow so you need to own that that robot, and and so curious. How do you think about business models? Uh, you know, what impact does robotics as a service have? Have you know, pros, cons, trade offs. So I I guess um, I'll just pipe in because we we've worked with several companies that are using this model. Um, the hard part is it's it's um it's very capital intensive for the company who's providing the robots, right? So. There's robots as a service where during the high, high demand in a fulfillment center, they can deploy another six pack of robots out there for the December season. But then they have to come back to their home headquarters when they're not being used. And so there's a big cost for that. Um, we actually have one company here that has a less expensive robot arm and they're, um, they're deploying and being paid by the hour so when the robot is on and working in the, in the factory, they're paying the robot or, or they're paying the, uh, the robot developer minimum wage, $15 an hour, something like that. And when it's off, they're not getting paid. So 
again, it's great for the factory now because they're getting used to using the robot and they're only paying for the time when the robot's on. But for the robot developer, now they have all this cost that's gone into this robot that's sitting there and a lot of times overnight won't be working. So they're not getting paid for it. So there's, you know, I guess there's a, you know, you have to decide which model will work for you. It's, that's where us wonderful investors come into us to help pay for all those robots you need to scale. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll go next to what I think of um, bluntly as the China question, which, which is how do you build a moat, you know, building a hardware product that probably in a few years, another company or, you know, another company in China perhaps will build cheaper and, and, and can undercut you. So how do, how do you defend yourself against that? I mean, I like the military model. Oh, sorry, the military model is you have to buy it. You can only buy it if it's made in the US. For us, it's, um, it's, it's data, data that we collect from procedures that China don't currently have the personnel to perform. So uh, um, it's, uh, there's, a, there's a significant data mode. Yeah, um, it, it's, it's always a worry. Um, I have um, seen robots all around the world which were clearly made on iRobot tooling, either copied tooling or stolen tooling. Um, very hard to defend against in China, but uh, many, many lawsuits against um, people distributing those robots in other countries. Um, that was the way that one of my previous companies dealt with it. But uh, it, it, it's always a, a problem. So you have to protect your intellectual property in some way. Um, when I was first learning how to do manufacturing in, the, in China in the 90s, um, I was working with a, a toy making company um, because the first the first product I manufactured in China, by the way, was a humanoid. It was a humanoid robot. It was a my real baby, um, but that's another story. Um, uh, but what I what I learned there was that um, uh, the toy manufacturers um, built the built the, the the toys in in factories in China, and then they showed me they had this little little um, box which was handcuffed to a person which had um, chips inside, pieces of silicon, which were gonna be bonded directly into the toy because you didn't wanna pay for the, 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 the chip outline. And they would take that handcuffed to a person and then put them, and that had the code in the ROM on those little chips and put them into the toys. So it's a, it's a war zone. It's a, just a war zone um, to protect. Hmm. I think so. We, um, I mean, I don't know. This is there's some naivety to this, but it's a huge problem in China, and we want to work with China, and 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 China are, are, are I mean, you cannot generalize, but tend to be quite with respect to healthcare, altruistic and wanting to help people. And if you're working with them, um, figure out a way to work together and um, use your technology to help their people. Um, I mean, I don't know. There, there, there are some battles that, that you can never win, but um, trying to be less combative and antagonistic, I think, is a good way to start. Yeah, and I, I don't want to sort of single out China um, in particular 
there are there are people in every country doing? doing trying to trying to trying to beat the system. It's just that there's you know China has been until recently the biggest country in the world with an incredible manufacturing capability. So that was where a lot of this showed up. All the talents in Australia, though. Sorry. All the talents in Australia. Ah yes, yeah. Well. <laughs> Yeah. Born so our, our government is is putting a lot of money into uh you know onshoring here in the u.s anyway um you know bringing some manufacturing back the only way they're really going to be able to do that is use of robotics and automation right because we don't have the labor that they have over there in china well, so, the, the, no, well let, let me let me be clear about china you know back in 2005 i i was working with a lot of uh, large companies based in tai Taiwan who were manufacturing in China at MIT. And I was starting to hear from the founders of those companies, the CEOs of those companies, we're having a lot more trouble getting labor in China for manufacturing. And that's why I started Rethink Robotics, which is originally called Heartland Robotics, because I, I could see that there was going to be labor shortages in China for manufacturing. And there is. Um, you know, I always... People, people would always accuse me of, well, you're going to be taking jobs away from, 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 from people. And I'd say, how many parents have a kid and think, I want my kid to be a, to work on an assembly line. That's, that will, that will, that's what I want for them. No, as soon as people start getting a higher standard of living, they want to do educated jobs. The same as that's certainly true in China. And you've seen the effect of that with a massive uh, amount of education growth in China. No one wants to do dull, dangerous, dirty jobs. People don't want to do that. And and so the, there is a place for automation. And as everyone, let's rise, you know, boats for everyone so that people don't have to do those terrible things. So as we're nearing the top of the hour, um, I think we can start to wrap up. And one of my questions is, what were, made you very excited to, to join robotics in the first place? Um, and now at this point in the industry, what are you excited about now that keeps you going? Uh, I am probably the, the newest person to it. I, I was super excited at kind of this amazing technology on the one hand and all of these like huge clinical needs and problems that needed solving and the complete disconnect between the two. So I, I, what, what really drove me was kind of bringing those two things together and, and taking some of that amazing technology to apply it in ways that could actually help people. And that's kind of what, what still keeps me going. I'll tell you what really keeps me going is none of my kids want to take care of me when I get older. <laughs> so I'm going to need some kind of technology to help me uh, stay in my home longer. So I, I um, and even the companion robot thing. So I would love like a C3PO because not that he's doing things for you, but he's more of a companion. He's funny. He's witty. Um, would maybe laugh at my jokes that 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 are the same over and over, right? Um, but I don't want to burden my my children and other people. I'd rather have some assistive technology to help me. Yeah, that that gets back to what I said before: independence and dignity. Um, but that's not what drives me. I, what drives me is, um, you know, 60 years ago, 60 years ago, I first started trying to build robots when I was a kid. Uh, and uh, what drove me was, you know, you switch them on and they do their thing and it's just, it's automatic. And that's what's driven me for the last 60 years. Um, but along the way, I've had to, you know, become much more attuned to having, you know, 
not just toys for myself, but markets for other people. So, I, I, you know, I, my undergraduate degree was in pure mathematics. So I, I like to say that I started out life as, as a pure mathematician and ended up as a vacuum cleaner salesman. Um, <laughs> um, we've got three minutes left, David. There, there's one more question for you. Um, what sorts of medical operations do you see the most value in, in using a robot? Um, the ones where a human couldn't jump on a waiting list or be driven down the road for three hours and get the exact same outcome. So the, 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 one, the ones where um, things are time critical and there's a lack of people to do it, where I don't see robotics having a huge um, impact, which is kind of where it's been going, is improving human dexterity and in improving human precision. Um, the, the, the accuracy with which we tie sutures and, and do operations is really so good. It's better than it needs to be. It's very, very difficult for a robot to move the needle in, in that direction. And then as, as a final kind of fun question, uh, Joyce, you mentioned C-3PO. In, in a fantasy world, what science fiction would you have in your house? And, and I'll, I'll give you the chance to change your answer if you want. I guess I'd keep mine the same. I, I still think a companion um, to remind me of things and almost like a little assistant, that, that type of thing. But it doesn't have to be human factor, although C-3PO is a human factor. And um, I think he's very cute. <laughs> Could get up and down the stairs because he has the legs, right, Rod? <laughs> I, 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 in terms of science fiction, uh, uh, two thousand and one inspired me. You know how it was a murdering psychopath, but apart from that, it was great. But I think that the best, the best robot movie that I think in terms of being asking serious questions underneath it all is Bicentennial Man uh, with Robin Williams as the as the robot, and people are becoming more robotic during that by having more internal devices in them as Bicentennial Man, the robot, is trying to become more human. And I thought that was actually pretty well done. I like a Tamagotchi. Bring it back. <laughs> mm, old school. <laughs> okay, with that, thank you to uh, all of you, our panelists, Joyce, David, Rodney. Thank you to Marissa for helping me to moderate this. And, and thank you to the audience for coming and watching. Really enjoyed it. And we'll be back next month with our, our next webinar. Thanks, Thanks everyone. Learned a lot. Thank, thank you, guys. Thank you. Thanks for everything. Bye. Thanks.